Thanks for listening to the Toronto Legends Podcast. I am your host, Andrew Applebaum. My guest today is Jesse Fuchs. Jesse is part of the on-air talent at a small local broadcasting outfit known as Rogers Sports and Media, where he can be found serving as a Sportsnet anchor slash host slash highlights guy. He is certainly a local Torontonian, moving from Scarborough to Ryerson to the Score to Rogers, so I thought it would be great to catch up with him today. Welcome, Jesse, to Toronto Legends. Thank you for joining me. Where are you and how are you? Uh, I, right now, I'm located in Stouffville, Ontario. That's where I moved after leaving Scarborough. I'm doing very well. I think it's really funny that you said the small little elephant known as Rogers. Whenever somebody asks me, you know, where do you actually work? I'm like, it's a big evil tower at one Mount Pleasant. It just comes out. It's 40 stories tall, big, scary red sign on it. That's where I work. Well, we have been uh, put back a little about you and I. I'm in Richmond Hill, and that's what happens to all you good young professionals as we uh, age out and grow our families. We move north. So uh, you are now, in addition to Elvis Stoiko and Eric Alper, you are now a legend of York Region as well. So congratulations. Oh, thanks very much. It's everything I hope for in life. May I ask about your family? Of course. I have uh, a wife and we have a four-year-old daughter named Sophie. Small family at the moment, but uh, we'll see where it goes from there. I don't want to <laughs> jump too far ahead, hoping to add more in the future, but we have just have Sophie for now. Uh, my parents, uh, I, I grew up at uh, Nielsen Road in the 401, so a place called Malvern, anyone from Scarborough will will know that place very, very well. Uh, they moved up to Stouffville as well after I graduated high school, oh gosh, I don't know, 20 years ago now, and then we moved, kind of moved up to join them. You know, they they tell you that... You know, you spend so much of your life trying to get away from your parents. And then all of a sudden, hey, I now live 10 minutes from them. And it's actually the best thing ever because they can take care of our daughter all the time. So it, it works out really well. There's no way to overvalue the uh, free babysitting. Oh, big time. Have you seen? I mean, the price is a little bit better these days now that they have the $10 daycare. But uh, <laughs> yeah. the early days of Sophie going there, it was it was pricey. Now, before we go to This Is Your Life, Jesse, what are you currently doing at Roger Sports and Media? As I get the sense, you're kind of a Mr. Everything over there. Yeah, it's a good way to put it. Uh, the Swiss Army knife, the spare tire, if I want to be mean to myself. Uh, I do a little bit of everything, and you know, I kind of like it that way. Uh, I spend my days hosting uh, Sportsnet Central, which is our nightly highlight show. Uh, I spend my other time covering the Toronto Maple Leafs, which is a really interesting time right now. After many years of, of it not being that way, I had, until the last couple of weeks, was working with uh, City TV. I did their weekend updates. I did those for almost nine years, I think. Uh, and then I do some behind-the-scenes work. I do some uh, voiceover work. I do some supervising in terms of getting shows ready. And so I, I, have, I have my hands everywhere, which means that I'm very hard to get rid of because <laughs> I can just do something else. It's yeah. always my plan. You got to make yourself important. Now, you were quickly and maybe surprisingly for you approaching a decade working for Rogers. Mm -hmm. Do you expect to be getting a uh, ballpoint pen or a lapel pen in recognition of your uh, service? Well, here's the interesting thing. Well, I started my first job was with the Score Television Network, which was also located in Toronto. That outfit was bought by Rogers now almost a decade ago. Well, the interesting thing and I guess the nice thing is they decided to continue to honor my service from that time. So technically, Rogers considers me now almost a 17-year employee, which wow. does make me feel very old. Uh, so I've, I've gone through the 10 and the 15, and I got the plaques, 
and I got the nice cards. It was a very interesting thing. Uh, you know, they, they hand you some stock at 15. It was, it was very nice. So I, I'm, I'm now closer to 20 years technically as Rogers considers it. But uh, yeah, since I set foot in the building, it's been about 10 years. So oh, that's great. Well, now we have your 20th to look forward to. <laughs> yeah. Oh, boy, I'm not really looking forward to those types of numbers these days. But, you know, hey, that's good. You know, most people move companies 10 times. I know my wife who works in human resources has changed jobs, I think, five times in the last decade. So for someone to work in one place or two places for that long is certainly rare these days. Stability is good. Mm hmm. Now, Jesse, on that note, let's go all the way back, get your story. When and where in Toronto were you born? You talked a little about Malvern. Talk a little about your upbringing. Well, I was, yeah, I was born at North York General, uh, 1986. Great year. Yeah, grew up in Scarborough. Very nice. Like, I know Scarborough has sort of like a connotation, and but people are, very, people. If you, if you talk to Scarberians, like they're very proud of where they're from because of kind of what it forces you to do like everybody there, you know, it, you grew up in a neighborhood where not everybody had a lot of money. And that was certainly the case for us. But, you know, we had a, I had a very happy childhood living there. You know, you tell people sometimes you're from Scarborough and their face kind of cringes up. I think yours did there for like half a second, but it was a really nice place to live. And, uh, I really enjoyed, I was lived there for 18 years and, uh, before I moved into the city and then up to Stouffville. So I really, I really enjoyed growing up that there's some, there's some sort of like hardworking, gritty aspect of that place where it's like a there's some sort of camaraderie whenever you find out someone else is from Scarborough you're like yeah me too like we, you, you go over the neighborhood they're like yeah solid but it was a really great place and then I uh, live was there going to school you know close to my house for a long time and then got to high school and uh, I fancied myself something of an athlete when I look back it was very misguided but at the time, I thought I was pretty good at something. And, you know, people ask all the time, you know, how did you end up choosing broadcasting? And it was, you know, every athlete has a realization. Sometimes it comes at 16. Sometimes it comes at 40 after a Hall of Fame career. But at some point, you are told or you're shown that you're not quite good enough or nowhere near good enough to do to do what this is, what it is that you want to do. So I was... Uh, I left my little part of Scarborough to, uh, I was accepted into uh, an athletic program, it was Birchmount Park Collegiate. Uh, I was 14 years old getting ready for, for high school. I was very proud of myself. I had to take two buses and an RT. Uh, if anybody, again, people from Scarborough will know what the RT is. Uh, it was a very long commute. I left my tiny little bubble in Scarborough to go to a different, a different part of Scarborough, but um, very far away. And it was a... Let's, let's call that a humbling experience because you're a teenager. You don't really know. You think you know everything at that point. And that I was convinced that I was going to be some sort of great athlete. And so this was a specific athletic program. So you're filled with other people who are really good at what they do. And uh, you didn't go through a regular gym class. So the, the other kids did, you know, dodgeball and all that stuff. And you had to do weight class and you trained in the pool and you did running outdoors and uh, I was really excited. So it was my first day of high school, grade nine. I was six foot, maybe 150 pounds, like absolutely soaking wet. Um, that's like 70 pounds ago for me now, but you know, it's nice to look back. Uh, the, the very first day I had a, a weight training class and the change room is right underneath the weight room. So I'm this scared 14 year old kid. And all I can hear is this sound like crashing against the ground, like bang, bang. And I was like, what the hell is that? 
And I, I walked up the stairs and literally on top of the change room was a guy known as Anthony Stewart, who is another great Scarborough native. I played hockey with his brother, Chris. Uh, he was, he is one year older than me. And of course, everyone knows if you know Anthony's story, he went on to play in the NHL. He's now one of my colleagues at Sportsnet. And he was, again, barely a year older than me, was bench pressing about 250 pounds and was double my size. I walked up the stairs and was going, I thought to myself, yep, that's official. I'm not who I thought I was going to be. Everything kind of clued in and sort of, you know, when you talk about where your life sort of went from that, I don't even know if I've had this conversation with Anthony and I work with him. But yeah, he's the one who convinced me or showed me that all these things that you thought in your childhood are not going to happen and you need to pick a different route. But hang on, Jess, you're not giving yourself enough credit. Well, you're at Birchmount Park Collegiate, you were the hockey team's goalie, but who mm-hmm. also came to tryouts and did not make the team. Yeah, another very big name who went on to big things, it's Wayne Simmons. Uh, and you talk about, so uh, yeah, it, I was, I'm a couple years older than Wayne and... I remember, you know, trying out for the high school hockey team and I was the goalie and everything seemed normal to me. And there was this young, tall, skinny, very skinny kid known as Wayne Simmons. And at the time, I believe he was playing single A hockey for the Toronto Aces, if you can believe it. And as far as I know, he don't think he made the team. Uh, it was, you know, a grade nine kid not making it wasn't that big a deal, but he was, you would at that point would have never guess that he would go on to have what is it a play a thousand games in the NHL and I remember graduating and you know obviously we ran in different circles being uh, you know friend circles being in different uh that far apart in age and then I remember turning my tv on for the world junior hockey championship and they were going through the roster it's been announced and from Scarborough Ontario Wayne Simmons and I was like what so yeah, it was. Uh, I I have played with a few. Well, briefly, I've played with a few uh, people who went on to some big things in the NHL. Uh, a great Scarborough people, as you'll hear me talk about a lot. <laughs> Absolutely. Now, Jesse, you went on to Ryerson University for radio and television arts, which would today be TMU for sports media. Yes. Was it during your school that you uh, interned at TSN? Yes, it was during my third year at university, I realized I was very far behind. Uh, I had never really intended on, again, as my delusional teenage brain thought for many years, I was going to play in the NHL. So I I hadn't caught up to a lot of people who had already been wanting to work in broadcasting for years. So uh, I even got admitted into TMU kind of on a whim. I, I didn't really take it all that seriously, which is sad to say now, but that's just how I was as a teenager. I went through the application process, not really expecting anything. I had, they had interviews and I was one of the few people who got conditional acceptance based on raising my marks. Well, they're like, we like you, but you need to put in more effort here. So I I did eventually get in and I, I've always found myself trying to catch up to a lot of other kids because, um, they had been considering this for years. And for me, it was kind of like a, Oh, I can't play. Well, let's, let's talk about it. So I, I did, thankfully, somebody, Michael Landsberg, did let me in the door at, at Off the Record, and I worked there for a very brief summer, but it was really great to kind of see what the industry looked like. And uh, to work now that I look back on it, it you know, Michael Landsberg is a, a broadcasting legend, and even just to watch him for a short amount of time. And basically, I just did research in the back with three other people in a little, you know, cubby and, you know, met some cool and interesting people, and it, it, was, a, it was a fun summer. Well, it's a great way to get your feet wet. 
After graduating in 2008, your first full-time job, I believe this was at the score. How did yep. you get that job? Well, again, it was very lucky. I had applied for some stuff and didn't get through the door. And I was a little getting a little bit worried. I, I, again, now that I look back at things, making sure I had a job when I graduated university shouldn't have been that important in my brain. But at the time, you you think it's it's the end all and be all. And I had applied for some things that didn't work out. Uh, a man by the name of Sonny Fackelkaren, who's still a, a producer in the industry, uh, was the producer for Steve Coolius's show, The Spin, which became Hardcore Hockey Talk. They were looking for initially just a, an intern and, and someone to help. And um, they sat down with me and they gave me my first intern job uh, to work on that show, which was like, if you know Steve Coolius, he's an absolute maniac. Loves, loves hockey, has more energy than anything I've ever seen on this planet. I worked for them for about four or five months, and then that kind of spun into uh, other jobs within the score. And yeah, thankfully, I, I got out of university. By the time I stepped out with my degree, I had a job in broadcasting, which was writing scripts. This is going to make me sound very old, and I tell this to young people in the industry, that I used to write script by hand on paper. One of the requirements of the job, they asked me, they're like, how is your penmanship? And I was like, what? What do you mean? Like, to write? They're like, yes, we write scripts by hand. And uh, if the things were wrong, I'd write them out. It was a very old school way. Well, old school way of broadcasting at the time. We would do highlights on videotape, which to anyone younger than a certain age, they wouldn't understand. But, you know, the, the Blue Jays inning would end. I'd yank the tape out of the thing, roll it back, hand it to the editor. He'd have to play back the play that we wanted get the tape back, jam it back in, hopefully before the commercial break ended it. And that's how we initially started doing uh, highlights. And that was basically my first job was writing for a show called The Score Tonight, which is Tim was Tim McAuliffe and Sid Sixero and Cabby Richards and uh, all those people, again, who are now that we look back are, you know, also broadcasting legends. Certainly. Well, a uh, longtime journalist, Steve McAllister, was on the podcast recently he told me a ton of today's talent got their experience at the score. You mentioned Tim McAllister, at Sixero, Greg Sansoni. Mm -hmm. Did you see it that way as well now that you kind of look back that this is a great kind of learning ground for you guys? Yeah, you, you didn't really realize it again, as you kind of said at the time, but you look back now and there are former the score employees everywhere. And the thing you learn about broadcasting is it's just everyone thinks you work in sports, so it must be fun all the time. And it must be an easy way to make a living. And hey, you get to do all these things. You get to go to Leaf games, blah, blah, blah. And on its surface, it is. Like, there's a reason we all picked to do this in the first place. But it is a slog. One of my bosses likes to say that you can love the industry, but it won't love you back. The hours are tough. There's travel. There's a whole bunch of things that people don't realize goes into just being able to do this for a living. So a lot of people don't continue. It's you can do it for a long time and then you burn out or, uh, you know, family gets complicated and you working, you know, 6 p.m. to 2 a.m. every night forever and ever. Amen doesn't really jive anymore. So it's it's a very tough industry to stick in. But now when you look back and the scores been off the air for the score still exists in that in the you know betting app form. But the television in television network proper has been gone for almost a decade and there are still so many people uh, kicking around the industry in really high profile positions, TSN, Sportsnet, anywhere you talk about it uh, with, with former employees. So it really was a great breeding ground because it, it, it allowed you, they gave you chances nobody else would. Mm -hmm. 
So, uh, you know, the, there's an old adage in television that you have to go somewhere small to make it big. Now I, I was born in Scarborough. I, I grew up in Toronto. I had no intention of, of, uh, leaving this city to go work somewhere. I never thought I'd end up. So for me, it was, it was a bit of a foreign concept to go, well, I have to go move seven hours North of my house to, to get a chance of breaking through in this industry. Didn't quite compute to my Scarborough brain. So what, what made the score great is because it was a national network, but it was run sort of like a local network. And they allowed so many people, again, probably way before I was ready, to get on air and get my feet wet and do a whole bunch of jobs that, again, I wasn't qualified for at the time. But you get in there and you figure it out. So it was this sort of last, I think why so much of the talent has lasted this long is it was this great uh, proving ground and everybody got a chance really early in their careers to make an impact and get better. And it's, you can see how much it's paid off with, with how many people are still around. Well, they certainly were innovative. I certainly remember getting my, all my highlights, all killer, no filler. It was a great way to catch <laughs> up. Now, Jesse, in 2012, Rogers Media, the owners of Sportsnet bought the score for $167 million did you formally slide over from the score to Rogers or was it just a change of employer name on your paycheck? That's what it ended up being was basically just a change of name. They turned the score into Sportsnet 360. It does the channel doesn't look the same anymore, but that's it's technically still in existence. For us, it was a very uncomfortable time because the score was family owned and it was a much smaller atmosphere and at the time you're, you know, this huge mothership of a uh, broadcasting corporation is going to suck you all in. And we were just assumed that we were all going to be tossed out the door when, when that came. But thankfully they did bring almost all of us over, uh, to this new mothership thing. And you, you spent a bunch of time after that, just trying to figure out how to get forward. Cause, uh, I, I called the score to, at this point it, it's, it was the wild west, which was, there were few rules. It was about, this is what great about it. There were few rules. You could try stuff. You could do things that were so different. And then you got to Rogers, which was, and well, the reason you could do that at the score is because we, did, we didn't have any broadcasting rights. We weren't beholden to, we, we had the WWE, really. We weren't beholden to leagues to say the, the perfect things or, or, or do exactly what they asked. So that's why you were allowed to do these things. But now here's Rogers and they own the rights to 30 different leagues and they have so many different partnerships and there are people that you have to take care of it. Be careful what you say. So it was a definite change in culture, but uh, I, I was, it was very nice for them to bring us all over because now I've been here ever since. Well, certainly those that watch Sportsnet know you there, but those without cable may have recognized you from a very long run as the City News weekend sports reporter, complimenting news anchor Pam Seidel. Pam and you are also no longer doing those city sports reports. What happened from there? Uh, well, Pam went off into retirement after, oh, I think, a near 40-year broadcasting career. She killed me for saying that number. But uh, she did her time, and, and she's enjoying retirement. And uh, for Rogers, they just, you know, City TV's under the same umbrella as Rogers. It's owned by the same company. Um, but, uh, you know, deployment of people and how we do different things has changed. And uh, at, these, at this point, I'm so busy doing other things that I had almost run out of time to do that job on the weekends, but, uh, it was, I had only ever intended to do that job for about six months. It was supposed to be a bit of a placeholder while we figured out other things. And I spent almost nine years, uh, doing that job, working with Pam, who was just 
the odd thing is we worked together for nine years. I met her in person three times and it was five years before I even actually got a chance to talk to her in person. The first time we met, it was five years after working together and she was nervous. And I was like, why are you nervous? And she's like, but we've had this long relationship and we've never talked in person and now you're here and now this is weird. Uh, but she was such a wonderful, genuine person. Uh, those hits, they were supposed to be just, you know, hey, I, I pop on for three and a half minutes, four minutes, a couple times a show, talk some sports, throw it back. And that was what the intention of it was. And, and it was Pam who who made it so much more than that because she just wanted to include me in the broadcast. I think she started out just being lonely and she's like, hey, let's talk. You know, let's talk some sports. She was yeah, a wonderful person uh, to work with. And I didn't realize when we started it, like how much the viewers enjoyed just watching us talk about random things. And then I would get messages and I, I would assume people would hate it. Like we were talking about whatever came to her mind that day from a sports perspective, I didn't always have a great answer for her. So I didn't know how viewers would take it. And then I found out that, okay, they actually really enjoyed the inane random conversations of two people who sort of, sort of know each other, but sort of don't and strange place we could take the conversation. So working with Pam was, uh, was an incredible time. And I was really sad to see her retire, but she earned it. Now let's go behind the scenes. We love to see on this podcast how the sausage gets made, so to speak. How many suits do you own and do you get a, a wardrobe budget? We do. I just hit 16 suits. Wow. It was, it's a new high for me. Uh, I don't know if I need that many, but that's the way it goes. Yes, we, we, do, have a, we do have a wardrobe budget. Um, I would not be trusted to dress myself otherwise. That would just be you a terrible idea, that. right? So it's in need of professional help, both in makeup and clothes, just to make me look presentable enough to put on television. But we have a, there's a big room. It's a, it's a suit room, I guess. You know, it's a big change room and each anchor, male anchor has their own section. There's, there's suits in there and uh, everybody, that's where you, you leave everything when you're done. So I can show up and the beautiful part of my job is I can show up in sweatpants and you'd never know because I'm wearing a fancy Jack Victor suit not long after. So that was, and, and that's a very big perk of what I do is not having to worry about uh, what I look like. But yes, we, we do have a suit budget and uh, there's a wonderful national stylist named Deborah Berman who just takes care of everything. And I, you meet her a couple times a year and I go, Deb, you know, you know, what am I wearing next? And who does your makeup, Jesse, you or uh, someone else? Uh, during the pandemic, we had to do our own, which was again, a very dark period. Because it's something I should not be trusted to do, but yeah, well, there's a great team of uh, of makeup people who work at uh, work at Rogers, and uh, yeah, they do work miracles. Do do your best, guys. <laughs> do what you can, and you show up. And then they always made me for as good as I can possibly look. They did the best they could, but yeah, we do have. Uh, there's a lot of people there. Again, a, a good thing about working for a big corporation is a lot of people there who are who are there to help you. Present yourself in the best way possible. Support is great. Yeah. Now, of course, I want to ask you back on the subject of the suits. Uh, ESPN's Chris Berman famously would wear the top half, his suit jacket, Chris shirt and tie on top, board shorts and flip flops on the bottom. Mm -hmm. Jesse, do you ever do that when you're behind the anchor desk or are you wearing the full garb of the full suit, full corporate suit? Uh, I, not anymore. I can't pull that off anymore. Uh, we redid our whole Sportsnet Central studio in October. I spent half the show standing now. So you got to go. Everything from the shoes on up is needs to be coordinated properly. But yes, I have done it. We used to do the city TV hits. Uh, you could only see me from the waist up. 
I did get caught once, which did become a problem, was uh, there was a particular shot they would use on city TV where there were three people, it was called a three box, where they had three different people all talking at the same time. And I didn't realize that the framing of that camera was a little bit lower than I was expecting. And I was wearing, I think, board shorts with flowers on them and a suit on top. And then it was there's just a gentle reminder in my ear from a producer that maybe I should wear pants. And I was like, yeah, well, you know what? That's fine. That, that seems like the least that I can do is put pants on. So pro tip, Jesse, yes. what do you do with your hands when on TV and differentiate between when you're standing versus sitting at the anchor desk? That's a good question. There's a lot of things you shouldn't do or, or those are traditional ways of being taught that I'm kind of happy or are, are kind of going out the window. Like there was the way you're taught when you go to school is to have your hands in front of you and it's very proper and very stiff and very makes you feel very uncomfortable. So yeah, technically your arms should stay either at your side or folded in front of you. Now I'm a hand talker, so I kind of threw that out the window anyway, because I need to accentuate what I'm saying with my hands. So I, I kind of broke the rules on that one. But, and then when you're sitting at a desk, they're just supposed to be sitting on the desk nicely in front of you. You don't put them underneath the desk because that looks weird. Um, there's a lot of things that you don't think about that with your hands that can actually look very strange. Uh, I had professors who would, you know, throw stuff at you if you had your hands in your pockets. Funny, I, I, I did a show um, maybe a couple months ago and now putting your hands in your pocket thing is kind of, you know, you're, you're trying to create a nice atmosphere with people. And sometimes you have your hands in your pockets a little bit more, doesn't have to be serious all the time. So I remember having both of my, I, I guess I had both my hands in my pockets for something I did, an interview I did on Sportsnet Central. And I had an old boss who was an old school kind of guy email me out of the blue. It doesn't work in Rogers anymore and said, Hey, don't forget, take your hands out of your pockets. And I was like, Oh yeah, right. Thanks. Okay. Yeah. But, uh, technically it's yeah, either by your side folded in front of you, or if you're on a desk, just nicely placed on the desk in front of you. Jesse, I want to ask you about memorable interactions you've had either because they were so good or so bad. And these can be with sports or non-sports celebrities. And I'm going to start you off because I understand mm. the first time you interviewed Austin Matthews in person, you got a little distracted. Yeah. Uh, people don't know this because you see him wearing equipment. Unsurprisingly, he has a, an excellent physique. He is in great shape uh, for <laughs> being in. You know, I, I was covering the, it was actually one of the first times I spent covering the Leafs and it was before the season. So it was still in September, you know, temperatures are really warm. Uh, we would interview players outside, uh, out the back of the play off the, uh, sort of practice facility. And again, for a first or second day, actually interviewing players. And it was after practice, Austin Matthews walks out wearing like biker shorts. That was pretty much it. And everybody else just kind of moves on with it. And I, and I, I found myself didn't really intend to staring at his legs. I'm like, that guy's quad He's more of like a dude, like solid man. Like, you know, good for you. Uh, like his quads are the size of like my torso. He's a giant human being. And I realized not too long after that I'm standing three feet away from him, staring at his calves or staring at his quads. And he can definitely see me, uh, looked at me and then he just kind of looked away. And then he, I, I guess it hasn't, it's not the first time that happened to him, but yeah, it wasn't, wasn't the greatest first interaction with Austin Matthews, but, uh, he definitely doesn't remember. So that's great. So I've been talked, I've interviewed him maybe 50 times since. So. We were able to move on from that, which is great. 
anyone else that stood out for you because it was a really fabulous or a really horrible interaction? Not, haven't luckily haven't had a lot of horrible interactions. I covered the Leafs during the I don't remember what year it was now, but Brian Burke called it the eighteen wheeler off a cliff season. Yeah, uh, it was the most uncomfortable I've ever been on a night in and night out basis. Like everything. The team wasn't performing well. Everything was toxic. It was, you'd go to games and they would boo everything. And not that they shouldn't have. It was just how they, how things went that season. And they spent the second half of the year losing almost every game. It wasn't uncomfortable. Like people don't realize that, you know, when you cover a a team, you're there a lot. So you develop your own relationships with people. And when you see the same people every single day, you get very used to how things go. And in Toronto, I like to say that, you know, it's nice that things have finally changed and they want a playoff round, but this city really enjoys negativity, especially certain media outlets enjoy when things get uncomfortable because then, you know, that sells, right? It's, it's people read more when the team's doing well, they're like, yeah, okay, great. I expected that. But when it goes bad, that's when things get interesting. And that season was such a dumpster fire to finish. And I, I think it was near the time that they were officially eliminated from playoff contention. Uh, James Reimer had a really tough game. I think he'd given up three or four goals and he made one save on a dump in and the the crowd gave him the Bronx cheer and it was really loud and everybody heard it. Everybody knew it was there. So it became a storyline in the game. And the unfortunate part of, you know, when you're, uh, when you are a reporter is I have to ask, you know, I'm going to ask, I have to, that's the job. You don't want me to, it's going to be uncomfortable, but I got to do it anyway. And being somewhat the new guy on the block at that point, all the other reporters were very happy to let me be the guy to ask that question. And James Reimer answered it very respectfully and said, you know, uh, you know, fans are allowed to do what they want. They pay the tickets. He walked the line very nicely. And then I ended up with the captain at the time, Dion Phaneuf, who I've interviewed in later years. Again, he doesn't remember this interaction at all either, but uh, a nice guy just in, in a tough situation. I asked him about it and he looked at me and he said, what's a Bronx cheer? So I had to stand in a scrum on national television, which was being aired live to a professional hockey player who definitely knew what the answer to the question was, what a Bronx cheer was. So I finished, he let me finish the the description and then goes, I don't know what that is. I don't listen to the fans. And I was like, well, really? I have to ask. I, I, I know you did hear it. No, I didn't hear it. Didn't hear it. Not at all. And then brushed me off and walked away. And I was like, well, okay, that, that went great. That was, that was the most uncomfortable I've been in a reporter role. Well, on that note, just do, doing your job, mm-hmm. are you able to enjoy games and cheer as a fan, especially now, as you know, you're from Toronto, mm-hmm. Toronto's rolling now, or does that conflict with the kind of journalistic code of being independent? Definitely conflicts with the code. There's a code and then there's a, a, a way you become, which again, people don't tell you when you start working in sports, you think it's going to be great all the time. And people ask who you cheer for. And I said, whoever wins fastest. Like that's, that's kind of what you become as a broadcaster, especially in sports, because I cover everything. I cover every single team and you know, I can't go home if I'm working sports net central until the games are over. So if there's a West coast baseball game in the eighth inning and it's tied seven, seven, I don't care who wins as long as somebody does. And as fast as humanly possible. So you kind of lose that, that fan aspect to it. I try to turn it off when I'm when I'm at home. I mean, I, I normally don't broadcast this out, but yeah, people know I grew up in Toronto. I'm I'm a, I, I grew up a Leafs fan. I wish them no ill will. I cover the team. It's but um, it, you kind of lose that. Like you know, I, I watch the scenes of when they 
uh, from fans, you know, tearing street signs down and but others being nicer and, you know, partying and just going absolutely nuts. And I, I don't have that part of me left yeah. to really, really get excited. It would have to be a team that in this country nobody cares about. Like I, I support Newcastle United in the English Premier League. And I, I feel like I can get excited about that because here nobody really cares. But uh, as a journalistic thing, you definitely lose that part and it's certainly not encouraged. Like there, there is a strict, not a strict rule, but it's unwritten rule. You don't cheer in the press box. Whatever team you support, you you have to put it away. And if someone scores the best goal you've ever seen, you know, you just kind of have to stay calm. And, and before, before you think about it, you, you do that all the time. So I was watching a couple of that Leafs first round series at home, wasn't working those days. And it, it even seeps into my homework. I, home life, I was watching the game with a beer and I, they scored the overtime goal. And I was like, yeah, all right, goal. Sweet. <laughs> yeah. That's, that was really awesome. It's such a fine line. I would think though, to, uh, navigate, uh, I realize he's an employee of the Leafs, mm-hmm. but I think a reason people love to turn down the TV and turn up the radio is Joe Bowen and Jim Ralph, mm-hmm. the way they're so pro Toronto and they get so excited. We get excited too. So mm-hmm. I guess it depends on your role and, and there is room for both uh, fans and staying independent. I certainly think so. I hope so because then otherwise you're just denying what you actually are. But I definitely don't support people just going on television and saying, you know, outwardly cheering for somebody but yes as a as a bra if you're if you're doing play-by-play and you're you are the home team broadcaster like i fully support some people hate homers but i fully support like if that's if that's the the audience that you're serving then you might as well be you know jack edwards of the bruins or hawk harrelson of the white Sox. you might as well be synonymous with that team and be a homer but uh especially for myself when you work in a national setting like you have to understand that this is you. This is a Toronto podcast. Everybody else hates Toronto, and I think we know that at this point. But it it really is a sticky subject outside this city. So my focus always is that when it's not something Leaf related, just don't bring up the Leafs. And you have to serve the other audiences as though you know I was born and raised in Edmonton, and I think that is a part of the job as well in terms of being a national broadcaster is giving the other or the other sort of teams and fan bases the respect they deserve without having Leafs or Toronto talk seep in because they absolutely hate it. If you're enjoying this Toronto Legends interview, please check out the more than 100 additional episodes available anytime. We've got Kent Manderville, John Gibbons, Mark Cohan, Andre-Philippe Gagnon, and Gord Martineau. So many great behind-the-scenes stories directly from the Toronto Legends themselves. All episodes available 24-7-365, wherever you get your podcasts. I hope when you talk about national broadcaster, you can answer a bit of a business question for me, Jesse. Rogers paid $5.2 billion with a B Mm -hmm. for 12 years of NHL rights. Why then am I able to watch the games on CBC? And and this isn't just the Leafs and Oilers Mm -hmm. and Canadian teams. I just watched Florida versus Boston. All this money was paid, but now I can watch the games on CBC. Why, why is that? Well, it's because we need the the airspace as well. So we do it in partnership with them. So it's, and if, if you're talking about, there's still people who have traditional cable. They watch games with rabbit ears, if you can believe it or not. Like there, there are people who are still stuck in, in that time, that analog time, who may only get three or four channels 
on their televisions. And you better believe CBC is one of them that they get. So it, it allows for the NHL and especially broadcasting in this country to have more reach if you share games with CBC. So you have the choice between the two, but ostensibly it's a Rogers broadcast. So that's what you need to know in terms of it. Uh, we get lots of, lots of hate about the, you know, regional blackouts and, uh, a lot of things that we can't control. I've often thought that we need to teach like an education course about like, we didn't broadcast this Jays game on Friday night because it was on Apple TV. It was not our decision. Someone told us that we weren't allowed to do this, but, uh, you know, social media doesn't always think things through, but, uh, that's the reason why CBC still has games. It's a, uh, it's a partnership in terms of making sure the most amount of Canadians have access to watch hockey. Well, that certainly makes sense. Kyle Bukakis, mm -hmm. the slick quaffed in arena host of Hockey Night in Canada, friend, enemy, or frenemy, Jesse? <laughs> I don't think it's possible for Kyle to be an enemy of anyone. Maybe Brad Marchand, if you've seen that one viral clip of him going back and forth. Maybe Marchand doesn't like him, but I don't think anybody else dislikes Kyle at all. And I certainly had a reason to when he first started. Like, I don't know if you know, Kyle doesn't age in my head. Like he started when he was 19 and he's still 19. He's a very young man who's now built himself a very good career. And the rest of us, the, the untalented, like myself, it took a very long time for me to carve out my place. If, if such a thing exists, um, to get the chances that I needed and to get to the level that I got to, it took me a long time, well into my thirties to, to be a, a national broadcaster. Kyle just kind of walked into the job and was just amazing at it besides the hair. Um, so yeah, there's no, I kind of thought I would dislike him because of how talented he was just from a pure jealousy standpoint, but no, he's, he's a fantastically nice person. I run into him all the time covering the Leafs and the hair is phenomenal. It looks like that on game days and not game days. Yeah. He's just a good person. So, uh, does certainly friend. Fabulous. Well, I like to hear that. Another colleague of yours, Simon Bennett, mm -hmm. he of 680 Sports, the voice of our Toronto Marlies, which by the way, people may not realize the Leafs AHL affiliate are also deep into a playoff run. Simon makes great use of his pipes. Jesse, are you also making use of your pipes? Is voice work something you enjoy doing? Is it something you want to do more of? Uh, I love Simon Bennett. I've worked with him for 15 years. Try the real. There's so many people who reach out to me from those days, you know, were fans of the score because they knew our voices. And Simon was at the top of that list, you know, ball go away. There's anyone who grew up <laughs> watching the score knows uh, Simon's voice. Um, he has one of the best voices, I, I think, anywhere in television. And Rogers uses him like on all of our different promotional materials. I used to do a little bit of it. I don't really anymore because it's, it's mostly more of a, um, I don't have time to do such things, but, uh, I would love to do it more in the future. Uh, I don't know if I have like Simon's voice is iconic. Like it's, it's just a fantastic voice. I just, to me, I sound like a dude. I'm just a regular, I'm just a regular guy whose voice is somewhat tolerable. So that's how I view myself. So I don't think, you know, I would love to sell some Quiznos sandwiches or, uh, if no, that doesn't even exist anymore. I'd love to sell Subway or Bullway or whatever it's called now, but uh, nobody has reached out as of yet, sadly. Well, let it be not. <laughs> Jesse is available yes. for such work if needed. I will sell anything well, you want. We've clearly established, despite your youthful good looks, that you are an industry veteran right now. When aspiring youngsters and recent sports media graduates ask you for advice, uh, you've of course echoed, or you would echo the words of Papa Fucus, who says, the best ability 
is availability. Mm -hmm. Have you followed that credo? And what do you tell young and aspiring young journalists and people coming out of programs that you came out of years ago? Yeah, the best availability is uh, the best ability is availability is like what I live by at this point because I still do it. Like as you, when you are the spare tire, the the Swiss Army knife, I, I have to go a lot of different places. Every week is different. Uh, I get called in here. They need you here. I got to go there. This person's sick. Can you cover here? So, uh, you know, for someone who's been in the industry for 17 years, I'm still doing it. So for anybody just starting out, yeah, you need to do it. If you can just make yourself available to do certain jobs when somebody asks you, and it doesn't matter if you enjoy it or not. I, I, I When I first started out, I had really not much, not watched much soccer in my entire life. I knew the rules. I knew what the sport was. Do I watch any of it? No, I would watch the World Cup every four years. But I had someone say, oh, I need you to work on the soccer show. It's Saturdays at eight in the morning, which to a 22-year-old wasn't the best job I've ever been offered. But it was, you should do this. And for the simple reason the boss said to me was because you don't know it. So it's time to figure it out. And I, when I talk to aspiring, especially sports broadcasters, my suggestion is to learn everything and learn to enjoy everything because some, there are obviously there are specialists in the industry, you know, guys like Elliot Friedman who only do hockey, you know, Jamie Campbell only does baseball, though he's capable of doing much more than that. That's just where he is at the moment. And, and that is a side of the industry, but it takes a really long time to be hired as, as the specialist guy and or girl um and the best way to get forward is to just take whatever comes your way and figure it out if they tell you to do cover italian second division soccer hey guess what you cover italian second division soccer now and you better figure it out and being flexible is certainly the best way and get used to weekends because again i'm 17 years into this industry uh, I have, I feel like I have a lot of seniority, but I still work weekends almost exclusively. So, uh, the example I give is Ron McLean, Canadian broadcasting legend has been working Saturdays for almost his entire professional career. If he can do it, so can you. And Ron's doing okay. Yeah, still is. Yeah. Jesse, your stories have been great. It's great getting to know you as we wrap up. I do want to ask where can we best follow you on social media? Are you active on social media? Uh, not particularly active. Uh, I have a love, very love, hate relationship, I guess, with, as most people do with social media, but yes, you can find me on Twitter at Jesse, J E S S E underscore Fuchs, F U C H S. Uh, I lost my check mark cause I'm not going to pay for it, but that's where I can be found. It's a, a very interesting place, which cause you, did you know that there's actually like five Jesse Fuchses as weird as my name is, there's actually quite a lot of us. I believe that whatever your name is, you should just put it on television and, and be okay with it. But yeah, people ask all the time, they're like, how do you, like, how do you get through life working on national television with that last name? And I go, it's not really a problem. Like, and it's an easy name to remember, which is you see that name, you do not forget it. But, uh, yeah, it, it, uh, uh, what comes with, I realize we started this conversation about social media, um, but it, you know, about not caring about certain things. And that's a big, that's the other thing I tell aspiring broadcasters is get a very thick skin and get it now because there's, it's one of the few places, like if you're an accountant, you know, no one's going to walk to your office and judge you for how you look or how you sound or what you say, or every word that comes out of your mouth doesn't need to be dissected, but that's how this industry is. And you have to develop a very thick skin in terms of, 
um, what people will say to you, uh, especially with social media, people don't really have any filter whatsoever. And, and that's a, that was something that I had to learn quickly because of Fuchs. So, yeah. uh, you get used to it and now I'm just defiant about it. I'm like, yeah, it's my last name. So you can deal with it. I've dealt with it for 36 years. You can deal with it on your television. It's not going to hurt you. But yeah, there are oddly enough, several Jesse Fuchses. So I do tweet infrequently. Uh, you can find me on Instagram and I think it's just at Jesse Fuchs 33. I think so. Uh, again, don't post a lot. It's mostly just pictures of my daughter, but uh, you know, you, everybody is welcome to follow. Well, I'm here to say, say your last name loud. Say it proud. <laughs> Jesse, you are talking to a guy named Applebaum. So there you go. Believe me, we, we've shared a lot of uh, slam dunks from the other side that are just uh, ingenious. So we have learned to ignore them. Yes. Yes. I want to thank you for your time today. And I certainly want to wish you uh, continued success going forward, Jesse. Thanks very much, Andrew. Thanks for having me on the podcast. I really enjoyed it. It's been my pleasure. And to the listeners, on behalf of Jesse Fuchs, I am Andrew Applebaum saying thanks for listening to this episode of the Toronto Legends Podcast. What happens when we play outside? We become healthier, both mentally and physically. We become more creative and more focused. We connect with nature, each other, and ourselves. Let's Take This Outside, a new podcast hosted by me, Marianne Iveson, an aspiring outdoor athlete and nature lover. I speak to athletes, outdoor professionals, and scientists about their connection to nature, how it affects their performance and everyday life. Let's Take This Outside, available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts, and at letstakethisoutside.ca. I'm Andrea Askowitz. And I'm Allison Langer. And we are the hosts of Writing Class Radio, a podcast, but we are so much more. We have writing classes. So if you are looking for live online classes where you can join a community, write to a prompt, get feedback, and get better, check out all our classes at writingclassradio.com. And listen to our podcast wherever you get your podcasts and at writingclassradio.com.